Are you looking for a comprehensive and convenient online health fitness training platform? Look no further than Vikido Fitness Academy. With a variety of programs designed to meet your needs, this platform offers everything from weight loss and wellness group coaching programs to an emotional intelligence course. You'll learn what to eat in order to achieve optimal health and energy levels. You'll have access to exercise training, live coaching meetups with myself, Dr. Vicki Haywood-Doe, and other instructors, as well as support and accountability throughout your journey. Whether you prefer to work out at home or at your favorite gym, Vikido Fitness Academy makes it easy to follow along with their programs. So get started on your journey to better health and fitness. Visit vikidofitness.com forward slash VDF Academy. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about research articles and hot topics. Our topic today is what's new? Hot topics number 97. A new study has shown that time-restricted dieting may be a better way for people with type 2 diabetes to lose weight than counting calories. There is a loneliness epidemic. Young adults suffer from anxiety, depression twice as often as teens. What should we do to help them? All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks-Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Haywood-Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks. So what's Hello, going on? Vicki Doe. It snowed today. The I know. The first day of snow. I know. I don't know. Hopefully, you know, it won't be too bad, you know. Sometimes not. Sometimes we never know. I think they got it know. worse in Cleveland. They got it worse up by Lake Effect. Area. Okay, okay. So um, they got it I guess worse. They had a bad accident today out in Mercer on Interstate 80, which I hate traveling Interstate 80. I know when I worked out there, I would always take the back route. I know. Because that Interstate 80 with the trucks driving like bats out of you know what, it was just awful. I know, but I wonder why it's so bad over there. I don't know. I don't know. It's always some accidents out there. Always. And always. bad accidents. No I know. Fender bender. Just really bad accidents. So, uh-uh. I know. It's terrible. No. But, yeah, yeah it it's, it's that time of the year again. I got to yeah. brace myself, you know. Me too. Uh, Me too. I know. Because, you know, it lasts forever. The cold lasts forever, doesn't it? Does. it? We'll be in this until the end of April, beginning of May. I know. Yeah. But that's okay. We will warm up on it's some okay. hot tea that's and it. some and that's some it. pumpkin spice and that's some it. <laughs> pumpkin spice tea. In fact, I bought some of that the other day. Oh, did you? Okay. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, here we are once again, right, D? Yes. We are here and this is episode 269. And today we talk about hot topics and research topics that we think are worth looking at. 
and talking about. And our topic today is what's new, hot topics, number 97. And so time-restricted dieting may be a better way for people with type 2 diabetes to lose weight than counting calories, a new study has shown. And the FDA has approved many new programs that use artificial intelligence, but doctors are skeptical as to whether the tools really improve care or are they backed up by solid research. And so we're going to talk about these articles and much, much more on this show. It's all about health and fitness, Vicky Doe Fitness. And as per usual, our co-host, Dr. D. Banks, will give us the latest on what is happening with COVID vaccines, flu. And this time, she would talk about why haven't folks gotten the new COVID shot? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I know. People are vaccine weary. I know. They're vaccine weary, you know. I know. That's the problem. In fact, I just, while we're sitting here, another friend of mine texted me to want to know, should I take the COVID vaccine? Um, I know. I know. I know. But we'll talk more about that. So stay yes, tuned. Yes, we will. Yes. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned to this episode. And make sure, folks, make sure you go sign up for our newsletter and our updates. Go to our website, vickidofitness.com, and sign up where it says sign up for our newsletter. Because when you sign up, you will be able to stay in touch with the things that we're doing right here at Vicky Doe Fitness. Also invite others to sign up for our newsletter as well, because when we launch and promote any of our new online Vicky Doe Fitness Academy, health fitness programs, our workshops, our services, you will be first to know. You will be the first to know. And we are gearing up soon. We are gearing up soon for our Um, program our popular program actually it's our seven day our seven day health reset challenge and so we are gearing up for that you will find out about it on our um, newsletter our email list and so we want you to make sure that you sign up but we also send out healthy tips and tidbits for you to follow and for you to stay inspired to live a life of health and wellness. So go sign up today. Go sign up to our for our newsletter today. Go to vickidofitness.com. All right. And as always, what do we say, D? Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Well, like we keep saying, this cold weather is creeping in. It really is. <laughs> I mean, I've had to bring out my coats from downstairs. I put my car in the garage, got my garage all cleaned out to put my car. And last night, I didn't know they were talking about the snow coming down. I had Mark to bring up the salt, you know, because, I mean, I was like, oh, we got to get ready for all of this. Oh, my goodness. And the leaves, you know, the leaves are just not. I don't want snow to be falling on these wet leaves before I can get them up, you know, and, and kill my grass for next year or whatever. I know, and they they just have fallen real quickly. Yeah, they just are now coming off. I, you mm-hmm. know, the last, hopefully the last few of them, so we can get them all bagged up and stuff and off the grass. I know, I know, but mm-hmm. yes, that is the time of year. That's the change of seasons, I guess. It is. Huh? It is. It <laughs> absolutely is. So whether we like it or not, whether we it's like it or deal not, with it. it's coming. Yep. It's coming. Yep, that's all, it. All right, all right. So how was your week, D? Um, it was good. I'm trying to think of what I did. I worked last week. Oh, I know what I did. I went to a really nice fashion show 
for the Altman Hospital Board in Canton. And it was very nice. They had a nice fashion show and they had, uh, you know, people selling stuff. And I got some cute little jewelry, did that. So yeah, I had two works submit, uh, selected, two okay. photographs. Okay. Both of them were done in Venice, Italy. Okay. Um, And so it was just, this was my first time being in the show. And it's just really nice to see a lot of people that I are to be accepted in a show where I see a lot of my, especially female artist friends who've been in there for a number of years. So it was really nice and it was really well attended. I mean, there must've been like a hundred people in there. Oh, that's nice. Sunday. Yeah. So it was good. Yeah. Just something different to do, you know? Yeah. I got to come down to Canton. I haven't been to Canton in so long. It's yeah, been a while. You should go to the museum down there, the Canton Museum of Art. It's mm -hmm. it's popping. Yeah. And then I have to get you when there's a really nice mm -hmm. symphony because the symphony is really into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. And they had a person who came in when I first joined the board, the symphony board, mm -hmm. they paid her to come in and look at the symphony to see how they could maximize their diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what okay. they came up with was every show has to have demonstrated some element of diversity, equity, inclusion. In okay. other words, mm -hmm. a female artist, African-American artist, Latino artist, okay. somebody who's maybe playing something special, the theme has to be diverse. So every single symphony okay. has something to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm like, you can't get much better than that. I know. So, and, but what, what makes it when you do that, it makes it so rich and just nice, doesn't it? It makes it Absolutely. great. And they also purposefully uh -huh. look at their board and they say, who are we missing? Mm. We're missing African-American men. Mm. We're missing Latino men. Mm. We're missing African-American women. We're missing an LGBT person from the community commit um, person. And the, the thing about it, when you do that, on boards, especially for like art museums and symphonies, I often say the community sees those places like barriers, like, oh, I don't want to go there. You know, it's all foo-foo and all this, that, and the other. But when you have a diverse board that reaches out in the community and you have a diverse program, it brings people in. Yes, it does. You know, it brings people in. And so, yeah, so it's a good thing. So sometime when we have one of our really good programs, I'll invite you and Nate come down. We'll come okay. down and I yeah, that sounds have good. Have dinner before yeah. that and go to the um, symphony. Yeah, so, that sounds yeah, that's, good. That's what I did. Oh yes, that sounds very nice. Very what nice did you to do? do. Well, nothing. <laughs> no, I'll be lying if I said that because you know I'm always. I know doing you something. had to do something. You editing and all of that too. Yeah, and then I had to run and do different um, stuff. So I went to a retreat that they had at Case, and it was nice. Yeah, With your young ladies that come down here. Yes. It was very good. The uh, Behavioral Health Research Group, they had their retreat with all of their research team. And it was uh -huh. so great. And I'm going to tell you why it was so great. Not only, you know, of course, we saw the, the ladies that had that have come down from um, 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 there to help us. Remember, they had a, a, a table at the 300 Sisters in Red and uh -huh. then the African-American Male Wellness uh -huh. Walk and all uh -huh. our then they uh -huh. participated in our um, program just now, uh, Healthy Heart, Healthy Living. So I, I, I saw all of them 
and others. They were presenting some of the research that they're working on now. Um, but I also got a chance to see the folks that I have been meeting with on Zoom with our project that we're trying to get together uh, since last year. So it was great to actually see them in person and give them a hug, you know, because we've been yeah. seeing each other on Zoom. And then Dr. Joel, I saw him from Kent all these years, you know. So, yeah, we've been seeing each other on Zoom. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's interesting how when you when you meet up with people at Zoom, then you meet them up in, in, in real life. It, it's still a little bit different, don't you it think? It is. It is. It's like, yeah, it is. oh, okay, okay. So it yeah, it, it was different, but it was very nice. And they had it at a nice place at the Cleveland Metro Park. It was off of oh. East 49th in one of the, uh-huh. in one of their um, pavilions and um, oh. a building. It was actually an oh, actual okay. building. Um, I've and, never been there. Okay. And when you walk in there, I was like, wow, this is a big time historical place with all the stuff. So I got a bunch of brochures that the lady gave me that will will show all the different hiking trails and stuff within the park because they have a big park too yeah they do yeah they definitely do yeah yeah metro parks is a bomb yeah so it it was very good but yeah it was nice to go uh, um and and hang out with them friday to actually meet them in person and then to hear all the good stuff that they're doing. But yeah, they were talking about stuff that we know about, you know, when it comes to mental health for our young folks. Man, yep. it's becoming rapid. Oh, wow. It's a lot. Yeah, yep, it is. Yep. And social media ain't helping it. It's not helping. Nope. So I don't nope. know. There's plenty of work for us to do. That's how I look at it, huh? Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. I know. Were the same young ladies there that participated in the yes, the oh. cook-off, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the uh, wellness walk. Yes, yep, yep. They were there. They were there. So Good. it it was nice to see everybody again and everything. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. All Good. right. So what is going on this week? Everything, Vicki, everything. Yes, well, you know, this is National Diabetes Month. In November, this is November the 1st. Can you believe it? I know. We're almost at the end of the year. (laughs) Taxes. Oh, I know. We had to cough up (laughs) that stuff. That's why I said nothing, because we beans and rice today. Oh, Lord have mercy. All that stuff. Another austerity program. (laughs) Big time, right? And when yes. they be cashing them checks, you look at your oh, stuff and you Lord. go, oh, Lord. I'm going to have to sell Mark for the amount that I owe and <laughs> estimated in January. I said, Mark, get ready. I'm selling you. Mm. I know. But, hey, this is the end of the year. And can you believe yeah. it? November. I as can't you- believe it. And December will be here. And then, and then December the 31st. And then we'll be into 2024. So we're on this end of 2023. Yes, Seriously. we are. So any of the the uh health resolutions and all that kind of stuff you better hurry up for what you better got one month yeah at least uh, get in that mindset so you can roll into the new exactly. year right exactly in other words if you ain't done uh 30 minutes of exercise three times a week uh you might want to think about at least doing once a week <laughs> at least start something so you can end the at year least start something so you can 
ease on into January. Exactly, exactly. But yes, November is National um, Diabetes Awareness Month. And according to the CDC, more than one in three now adults have pre-diabetic, have pre-diabetes. And so many of them do not know it. So National Diabetes Month is a time to raise awareness about diabetes as an important public health issue and encourage people to take charge, encourage people to take charge and to do what they need to do about their health. Well, this year, the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases um, is focused on taking action to prevent diabetes-related health problems, and diabetes is a disease that occurs when your blood sugar, also called blood glucose, is too high, and diabetes affects 37 million Americans, including adults and youth. And so diabetes, you know, it can damage your eyes, your kidneys, your nerves, the heart, and it is linked with some of some types of cancer. But there's good news. We do have good news. Taking charge of your health and thinking about it will help you to prevent diabetes and health problems. And so we have some tips here that you go and you look on the website, niddk.nih.gov. It has this listed. It also has a nice video so that you can look at and share it. But here are some tips. Number one, manage your blood glucose, your blood pressure, and your cholesterol levels. Um, Research shows that managing your diabetes as soon as possible after diagnosis may help prevent the problems that come with diabetes. And so you can start by managing your diabetes and they have the acronym ABCs. So A means your A1C test and that measures your average blood glucose level. And so you can have that checked. All right. B. The B is make sure you check your blood pressure consistently and C, make sure you check your cholesterol. So when you go to your wellness check, that's what happens. Your healthcare folks will help you make sure that you know your numbers. Number two, take small steps toward healthy habits. We just talked about (laughs) lifestyle habits. Make sure you have your healthy meals, you're being physically active, like Dr. D said. Make sure you at least do your your three, that's the 150 minutes. That's the least, that's on the least, but at least get right. that, right? 150 right. minutes of physical activity. You know, get enough sleep. That's what I got to work on because I don't Me be too. getting enough sleep. Of course, mm. I wake up in the middle of the night. Mine is insomnia. I get to sleep and then it's like, it's wake 2.30. Up. Uh, I know, right? So, but we have to work on our sleep as well. Get enough sleep. Make sure that you're not smoking to manage your diabetes. You don't have to do all these things at once. Start slowly, but make sure you think about building healthier habits. Number three, you got to take your medicines on time. Remember to take your medicines even if you feel healthy. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist if you have trouble taking your medicines on time at the correct dose. Also, number four, maintain or reach a healthy weight. If you are overweight or obese, ask your primary care provider to provide healthy eating, physical activity, or other weight loss treatments to help you manage your weight. You definitely, if healthy eating, 
ask your physician to refer you to some type of program, registered dietitian, nutritionist, some type of program, physical activity. You can get in touch with a exercise physiologist, and they do have treatments for weight loss. Whatever you have to do to be proactive to maintain a healthy weight and to reach that. Take care of your mental health. Yes. Managing diabetes can be hard if you feel down, sad, or overwhelmed. Learn about healthy ways to cope with stress. We always say we are just stressed out. As a nation, we're just stressed out, you know? (laughs) Pretty much. I know, right? There's always something to be stressed out about. Yep. So we got to learn how to manage that. And, you know, don't be afraid to talk to a mental health counselor. And last but not least, work with your healthcare team. Managing diabetes can be hard, but it takes a team. And so your healthcare team may include your primary care provider, a diabetes specialist, registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, always put in there, an exercise physiologist. So you ask your primary care provider who you should talk to about your diabetes and who they can refer you to. So they have things that help you control and manage. So no one should be walking around here with not knowing you got diabetes. And if you have it, not doing nothing. Exactly. There's plenty of resources. And so we want folks to go look on the website niddk.nih.gov and find out more. And those of us that are health, health folks, you know, let's keep spreading the word about how it's important for us to uh, know our numbers. And so what do you have to add to that, D? I like all of them, you know. And of course, now, as we've been talking for many, many years now, we're getting into the holiday season. And we've got to sort of get our mindset into all the temptations that we're going to have in terms of eating. And then as it gets colder, we're going to not want to go outside or go to the gym or whatever. And so I'm sitting here reading this and listening to this and thinking to myself, okay, November the 1st, I'm going to turn over a new leaf in terms of at least maybe trying to get to the gym a couple times a week, at least to start out. Because as you have, we have said, don't start out with unrealistic expectations, I baby know. steps. Baby so, steps. Um, all of these are very good. And you know, when you talk about mental health, mm-hmm. we're not going to talk a long time about it today but, or any day, but we're just coming off of a major, another massacre in this country. I know. Where it was apparent that the the man had mental health issues that had been identified and they're just not enough resources. I was talking to a friend today Mm-hmm. about the emergency room in our place is that a lot of the patients who come in our hospital have to stay in the emergency room. They're called pink slipped. Mm-hmm. Meaning they can be put in there for 72 hours, but they don't have the beds to keep them. So they have to be kept in the emergency room. Wow. So they're just, we don't have the mental source resources, mental health resources in this country like we should. So Everybody just has to do the best they can. And you were talking about stress. And Mm -hmm. I mentioned this the other day on Facebook. I was passing a colleague in the hallway and I said, so-and-so, is everything okay? And he was like, it almost just kind of like broke the ice. He's like, 
no. And then he starts telling me all this stuff. And I said, well, you know, I just want to tell you that someone cares that I just looked at you and you just didn't seem right. And this, that, and the other. And he says, I really appreciate you reaching out and asking. So we do have to kind of be our brother's keeper a little bit because, you know, our profession is like what you do and what me and Dr. Doe, that's a lot of stress. The stress because we always been bombarded with other people's issues and problems. And big, so big time. all the big time, time, 24. So kudos to the mental health mm-hmm. folks, because they got to mm-hmm. sit down and listen to all of that. That's it. And, and, That's and it. help folks, you know, so do. Yep. yeah, they do. yeah. So it's something. But yeah, yeah, this is, hey, this is the time to refocus, get, you know, this is the end of the year. Let's get our mindset together, right. with, especially with the holidays coming up. Yeah. So yeah, that we exactly. can. And with the holidays comes depression I and know. stress I know. and all of that. So, yeah, all these things is a perfect storm for not a good outcome. Right. And so we have to make sure that we take one step at a time and work on right. something for our self-care. All of us. Right. All of right. us. Yes. Well, you know, we heard about uh, Richard Roundtree, right? Oh. Man, that's my era. I mean, I was a first year medical student when Shaft came. You know, what you talking about? Isaac Hayes' song, Shaft? Oh, man. I mean, I was just, it just took me back. He, as they say, as you have here, he redefined African-American masculinity in the movies. Mm. He played the title role in Shaft. Yes, yes, yes. One of the first black action heroes. And he died in L.A. He was 81. And his manager said it was pancreatic cancer, which had only been diagnosed two months ago. Isn't that crazy? And several of my friends on Facebook who live out in L.A., mm-hmm. Kathleen Bradley, who was the Price is Right. She was one of the first yes. black Yes, girls, I remember. She was friends with him and she posted all these great pictures of him. He was, big, he was a big golfer, you know, and she had all these pictures of him and stuff. And he the movie was released in 1972. So maybe I wasn't a first year. I was, maybe it was the end of my second year. Okay. Was among the first so-called black exploitation movies remember that mm-hmm, yeah remember they were talking about and then pam greer she was one of the oh yes fe- i remember i can't remember what her name was but she was one of the black female action figures yes and he was started in that was in 19 i mean in, he was 29 years old the character john shaft is his own man a private detective who jaywalks confidently through moving Times square traffic in a handsome brown leather coat with the collar turned up sports a robust dark mustache somewhere between walrus style and a turned down handlebar and keeps a pearl handle revolver in the fridge in his Greenwich Village duplex apartment. So as Mr. Roundtree observed in a 1972 article in New York Times, he is a black man who was for once a winner. Wow. In addition to catapulting Mr. Roundtree to fame, the movie drew attention to its theme song written and performed by Isaac Hayes. Yes. It won the 1972 Academy Award for Best Original Song it describes Shaft as a sex machine to all the chicks. A bad mother. Shut your mouth. Yes. And yes. the cat who won't cop out when there's danger around. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Yes. The director Gordon Parks gritty urban cinematography served as punctuation. A fictional product of his unenlightened pre-feminist era, Shaft was living the Playboy magazine reader's dream. Beautiful women available to him as willing, even downright grateful sex partners. And he did not always treat them with respect. Some called him, for better or worse, the Black Black James James Bond. Bond. Yeah. 
Mr. Brownchie played the role again in Shaft's big score in 1972, which bumped up the chase scenes to include speedboats and helicopters and sexy women, erotic dancers, and other men's mistresses. In that movie, Shaft investigated the murder of a numbers runner using bigger guns and ignoring one crook's friendly advice to keep the hell out of Queens. Mm -hmm. In Shaft in Africa in 1973, filmed in Ethiopia, largely in Ethiopia, the character posed as an indigenous man to expose a crime ring that exploited immigrants being smuggled into Europe. I got to go back and look for that film. Yes. The mm -hmm. second sequel lost money and led to a CBS series that lasted only seven weeks. But the films had made their impact. As the film critic Maurice Peterson observed in Essence magazine, Shaft was the first picture to show a black man who leads a life free from racial torment. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was also a Shaft movie that came out in the 90s with Samuel L. Jackson yes, yes. and maybe an older Richard Roundtree and somebody else. So, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, may he rest in peace. But he was our first, you know, black male good looking hero. You yes. Know? Yes. And Nate said it was big time popular in Liberia as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they looked at it and, wow. and, and, and had a great time looking at it oh, wow. over in, in Liberia, West Africa. So it yeah. was very popular. It was very popular. And wow. he went on to do a lot of other great things, too. And so I thought it was very interesting. I didn't hear anything about him having pancreatic cancer. Did you? I didn't. You know, I heard he was sick, but I didn't hear what he had. Yeah. Wow. That's that's deep. Two months two months that took you out of there dang mm -hmm. you know that pancreatic cancer is unforgiving i keep i was asking one of my oncology colleagues the other day when i was on the elevator i said why can't you all find some early marker for that why can't you find some early detection something or other so somebody can maybe have a pancreas resection or something like that nine times out of ten by the time they find it it's stage four I know. So yeah. Yeah, that's 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 one scary cancer though. I, I it is. It it really is when you hear that. And any more, don't you think that you hear more about it? Yes. More yes. people are having it, more people being diagnosed with it. That just sort of seems like it that way to me. Yes, yes, it seems, yeah. Rest in peace though, right? Rest in peace, yeah. Richard Roundtree. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Richard indeed. Roundtree. All right. And it doesn't look like he had any, he married or anything. No, he just had or what? Or had any kids. Did they say anything about that? Did you see anything? I think he might have, maybe. Oh, okay. I have to check it out. Yeah. He might have had um, um, kids, but they didn't talk about it, did they? At mm -mm. all. You didn't hear anything. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. mm -mm. But I, it might be in this article uh, further down. So I'll oh, look okay. and check it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what's the latest, D? You always got something yeah. for us. Well, I just <laughs> thought, you know, fortunately in the hospital, we're seeing kind of a leveling off of the up uptick that we were seeing a few weeks ago. But I, I found this article, which is interesting. Few Americans have gotten a new COVID shot, CDC finds. Few Americans have received the latest vaccines against the coronavirus. Just over 7% of adults and 2% of children have received the shot as of October 14th, according to a survey presented on Thursday to scientific advisors at the CDC. The uptake is weak even among those most at risk of severe illness, only one in five people aged 75 or older has been vaccinated, along with about 15% of those ages 65 to 74, according to the survey of nearly 15,000 people. Why it matters, 
COVID is still dangerous to some Americans. More than 1,200 people are dying of COVID each week. According to CDC data, that's a travesty, said Dr. David Kimberlin, a pediatrician at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who represented the American Academy of Pediatrics at the meeting. It's like an entire neighborhood being wiped out every single week, said Dr. Kimberlin. About 16,000 people were hospitalized with COVID in the week ending October 14th, compared with early 23,000 at the same time last year and more than 44,000 in 2021. COVID hospitalizations among adults aged 75 and older are two to three times as high are as high as, as among those aged 65 to 74, and rates of hospitalization are highest among Native Americans, Alaska Natives, and Black Americans less than 1% of Native Americans and Alaska Natives and 7.6% of Black Americans have received, had received the vaccine as of October 14th. I'm really disappointed in the low rates of vaccination because I think it's a major missed opportunity to improve our overall level of health, said Dr. Camille Cotton, a physician at Mass General and an advisor to the CDC. Most people, background, the vaccine rollout has been bumpy. Most people should be able to get the vaccines at no cost through private health insurance, Medicare or Medicaid. Government programs also make the vaccines available for free to children and adults who are underinsured or uninsured, at least through December 2024. So far, more than 380,000 doses have been administered to uninsured people at more than 24,000 pharmacies. Still, many people have reported having trouble finding the vaccine at pharmacies, being charged fees, or even mistakenly being turned away. And unfortunately, uh, Vicky, that's still happening. Mm. At some pharmacies, demand uh-huh. has outstripped supply, leading to cancel appointments. Dr. Cotton said her clinic and others had received doses of the vaccine only in the last past couple of weeks, and she was cautiously optimistic that the immunization rates would be up. According to Health and Human Services Department, 12 million Americans have been vaccinated by October the 14th. That number grew to 14.8 million in the week after. About 36% of adults aged 75 and older in the survey said they would definitely get the shot, while 26% said they would probably do so or were still undecided. Second opinion, younger people are less vulnerable. Some experts have argued that immunity from previous infections and vaccinations is enough to protect most people from severe illness and death from COVID. The CDC recommended on September the 12th that all Americans aged six months and older receive at least one dose of the latest COVID shot. At the time, advisors to the agency were united in endorsing the vaccines for those at high risk because of their age, race, or health status. But a few advisors also expressed concerns about recommending the shots to younger people, especially children and young males at high risk for myocarditis and uncommon side effects. Relatively young and healthy people are at much risk, much lower risk of severe illness. Still, in some patients, the virus can inflict long-term damage to the heart and other organs. A telling number. Some Americans are just not interested. About 38% of adults in the survey said they would not choose the vaccine for themselves. About the same percentage of parents said they would not have their children immunized. We can have the best vaccine in the world. We could have the best ability to access it in the world, Dr. Kimberlin said. But if 40% of people say they don't want it, it's just going to sit on the shelf. And let me just last 
lastly add that mm-hmm. this issue about vaccine hesitancy and oh, you know, it's okay that um, you know, that it's okay that I get it and you know, but let's let us remember mm-hmm. long COVID is still a problem. Mm, that's it. So long COVID is still a problem. So So we have to really we have um, to continue to be mindful. And if you're in a high risk group, and especially if you're out there in the public, I mean, it's one thing if you just locked at home and you're not going out and this, that, and the other, but you're out there. In the, I mean, so many people that I know, friends and stuff are getting turning positive with COVID. And like I said, it's not like to be taken lightly. Just you're learning more about it. We're still young into this disease. It's only been around now almost three years. So re- that's relatively a young time for a disease. And we're still learning a lot about it as time goes on. So, yeah. Okay. So the, the lesson is that we got to think twice of, uh, of not taking. Exactly. I mean, you have to talk, maybe talk to your physician or look at yourself and see how, um, how likely you are to be affected by it. I mean, me personally being over the age of 65 and, and then I'm around it a lot. You're around it. Yeah. I'm around it a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and I try not to go in and out of those rooms if I don't have to do it so much. But you know, it's I'm still I'm still very cautious. I don't take that disease for granted because we still see some people who are um, getting put on ventilators. Mm. So yeah, it's something for us to think about. And so thank you, D, as usual. You are, welcome. You are, welcome. <laughs> you are so welcome. Hi everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about um, research articles and hot topics. And our topic today is what's new? Hot topics number 97. And so we start out with our article. It says fasting diets beat locale regimens for folks with diabetes. And this was written in Health Day News. It goes on to say we have some takeaways that we want to make sure that folks know. And the key takeaway is that people with type 2 diabetes who followed a time-restricted diet, and that means like um, intermittent fasting, eating only between noon and 8 p.m., they lost 4% of their body weight over six months. 
Calorie counters, on the other hand, lost just 2% of their body weight in that time. Reductions in blood sugar levels were similar in both groups. So time-restricted dieting may be a better way for people with type 2 diabetes to lose weight when counting calories, a new study suggests. Researchers found that people who only ate between noon and 8 p.m. each day lost more weight than those who reduced their calories by 25%. Both groups, however, had similar reductions in long-term blood sugar levels based on a test of hemoglobin A1c. The test shows blood sugar levels over the past three months. It's important to give people with type 2 diabetes more than one strategy to lose weight and decrease their hemoglobin A1c, said lead researcher Krista Verity, a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago. Some people find it difficult to count calories. Others don't have weekly or monthly support, and they need a dietary program that is simple to follow, such as watching the clock, Verity uh, added. In the United States, about 1 in 10 U.S. residents has diabetes, and that number is rising. And so the researchers said... It's critical to find more ways to control our weight and blood sugar levels, most especially for these patients. While the study represents a proof of concept showing that time-restricted eating is safe for those with type 2 diabetes, Verity said people with diabetes should consult their doctor before starting this sort of diet. Also, some medications for type 2 diabetes will lower blood sugar and need to be taken with food, she said. But the positive effect of weight loss on lowering blood sugar should enable people to reduce their diabetes medications, Verity said. Individuals with type 2 diabetes usually have to increase their medication throughout their life, often taking three oral medications at one time since most medications decrease the uh, hemoglobin A1C only a little, she noted. Being able to improve their glucose through just lifestyle is very important for reducing medication burden. For the study, Verity and her colleagues divided 75 people into three groups. One group followed a time-restricted diet. Another one was told to cut calories by a quarter, and the others followed neither diet plan. Average BMI, body mass index, was 39, which is considered obese. Average uh, hemoglobin A1C was 8. 0.1%. The normal range is 4% to 5.6%, according to the National Institutes of Health. After six months, the researchers found those on the time-restricted diet lost about 4% of their body weight, while those who restricted calories lost about 2% of their body weight. Both groups lowered their blood sugar by about 1%. Whether following a time-restricted diet will result in continued weight loss over a longer time isn't yet known, Verity said, noting larger studies are needed. This is the first study comparing an eight-hour time-restricted diet to calorie counting in those with type 2 diabetes, she said. 
Our findings will hopefully give doctors and dietitians confidence to implement time-restricted eating in individuals with diabetes who need an alternative diet to help with weight loss and blood sugar management. Iran Syed, a New York expert, not part of the study, thinks time-restricted dieting may be easier to follow than calorie counting. I've dealt with patients where mostly it's being caloric restricted, said Syed, a dietitian at North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset. Um, Caloric restriction has also been short-lasting because it's a behavioral control over eating, whereas time restriction is something more approachable, where time can be easier to control, he said. A diet style that is easier to follow means that patients are more likely to adhere to it, he said. The time restriction seems to be a better approach. It is something I would advise while taking medication management into consideration so blood sugar doesn't drop too low, Syed said. The report was published online October the 27th in the journal JAMA JAMA Network Open. And so for more information, go to the uh, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting. So this is like a time restriction of, what, eight hours? Yeah, so that's like intermittent fasting. You know how, uh, and that was eight hours. For them, they can only eat between noon and 8 p.m., you know. But there's different types of of time-restricted eating, 16-8 That means 16 hours. You only have eight hours to to eat. So they have different things of that um, to follow. But we we always and we've been saying that anyway, that people should stop eating at a certain time at night. Anyway, right. Mm -hmm. You You just can't keep grazing till midnight. Uh, No, (laughs) (laughs) not good. You just can't keep grazing. No, 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 no. So there's yeah, there's was um, from noon to uh, eight that they could eat, you know, their meals between that time. I thought okay. that was, I thought that was interesting too, because they, you know, we always uh, look at the research and different things. And this is just regular folks. These were folks that had type two diabetes. So, because, you know, most of the time, you know, when we talk about eating, we're worried that folks that are diabetic, they had to, you know, have small meals and all that throughout the day and this and that to avoid, you know, those, the, the blood sugar spikes and everything. But this is definitely great because then that shows that no, 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 you just need to be eating healthy how you should. Right. And don't, and don't be eating, you know, all day, every day. Right. You just can't do it. You just cannot do it. Yeah. So yeah, that was good. But yeah, you know, some people do, do the uh, caloric restriction too. Most of the most of the um, eating plans are caloric restriction, and that's needed too because some people do eat just too much too in yeah, one setting. Well, you know, I I agree. I was I'm just trying to analyze this. I guess the other thing about low calorie is that the only problem is most people underestimate the amount of calories in something that they're eating. Yes, they will not go up. They will go down yes. in terms of 
thinking, is this low calorie? Right. And so I think that's the rub where for me, the time restriction might be better because Mm -hmm. if you don't have a label attached to something or you're not, you're going to really significantly underestimate how many calories you're eating, I think. And that's been a problem, I believe. Oh, yeah. Around the board. A lot of diets. Yeah. Whether you're diabetic or not, that has been um, when it comes to healthy eating and stuff. You know, a lot of stuff, we got these hidden stuff that's in stuff. So Right, exactly. It's, minus, exactly. it's best to just, you know, yeah, still watch what you eat. But then mm-hmm. guess what? Don't eat after eight. How's that? Period. Period. <laughs> and they say yeah. it's more easy to follow. So Yeah, I, th- I, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. So there yeah, it I is. Uh-huh. Well, you know, our next article, I know you were going to talk about this. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I have to give all credit to um, your honey sweet. I believe it might have been last Christmas or sometime yes. when you guys were over here for a party. Uh-huh. And he introduced me to chat GPT. Yes. And I was just kind of like mesmerized. What in the world is this AI? I mean, you had kind of, I had heard about it, but to actually bring it home to show me in my house that I can put something on my computer that has something to do with AI. And of course, since that time, mm-hmm. I've been very interested in it. So I thought, and especially knowing that AI is going to be coming into healthcare. Yeah. Big already time. There, right. I thought this was a good article. Yeah. So doctors wrestle with AI for everybody out there. That's artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and patient care citing lacks oversight. The FDA has approved many new programs that use artificial intelligence, but doctors are skeptical that the tools really improve care or are backed by solid research. In medicine, the cautionary tales about the un- unintended effects of AI are already legendary. There was a program meant to predict when patients would develop sepsis, a deadly blood- bloodstream infection that triggered a litany of false alarms. Another intended to improve follow-up care for the sickest patients appeared to deepen, trouble- appeared to deepen troubling health disparities. Wary of such flaws, physicians have kept AI working on the sidelines, assisting as a scribe, as a casual second opinion, and as a back office organizer. But the field has gained investment and momentum for uses in medicine and beyond. Within the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which plays a key role in approving new medical products, AI is a hot topic. It is helping to discover new drugs. It could pinpoint unexpected side effects. And it is even being discussed as an aid to staff who are overwhelmed with repetitive rote tasks. Yet in one crucial way, the FDA's role has been sharp to sharp, has been subject to sharp criticism. How carefully it vets and describes the programs it approves to helping doctors detect everything from tumors to blood clots to collapsed lungs. We're going to have a lot of choices. It's exciting, said Dr. Jesse Aaron Field, president of the American Medical Association. A leading doctor's lobbying group said in an interview, but if physicians are going to incorporate these things into their workflow, If they're going to pay for them and if they're going to use them, we're going to have to have some confidence that these tools work. President Biden issued an executive order on Monday, last Monday, that calls for regulations across a broad spectrum of agencies to try to manage the security and privacy risk of AI, including in healthcare. The order seeks more funding for AI research in medicine and also for a safety program to gather reports on harm or unsafe practices. There is a meeting with the world leaders later this week to discover the topic. 
In an event Monday, Mr. Biden said it was important to oversee AI development and safety and build systems that people can trust. For example, to protect patients, we will use AI to develop cancer drugs that work better and cost less, said Mr. Biden. We will also launch a safety program to make sure AI health systems do no harm. No single U.S. agency governs the entire landscape. Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, and the majority leader summoned tech executives to Capitol Hill in September to discuss ways to nurture the field and also identify pitfalls. Google has already drawn attention from Congress with its pilot of a new chat box for health workers called MedPalm 2. It is designed to answer medical questions but has raised concerns about patient privacy and informed consent. How the FDA will oversee much large language models or programs that mimic expert advisors is just one area where the agency lags behind rapid evolving advances in the AI field. Agency officials have only begun to talk about reviewing technology that would continue to learn as, its processes, as it processes thousands of diagnostic scans. And the agency's existing rules encourage developers to focus on one problem at a time like a heart murmur or brain aneurysm, a contrast to AI tools used in Europe to scan for a range of problems. The a and then they have a little thing in here about Dr. Eric Topol, who used to be at the Cleveland Clinic, mm. is an optimist about AI's potential in medicine. Mm. But he cautioned, you have to have really compelling, great data to change medical practice and to exude confidence that this is the way to go. Mm. So how the FDA will oversee such large language models or programs that mimic expert advisors is just one area where the agency lags behind rapidly evolving advances in the AI field. Agency officials have only begun to talk about reviewing technology that would continue to learn as it processes thousands of diagnostic scans and the agency's existing rules encourage developers, like I said, to focus on one problem at a time, again, like a heart murmur brain aneurysm. It contrasts to AI tools used now in, in Europe that scan for a range of problems. So the agency's reach is limited to, product, to products being approved for sale. It has no authority over programs that health systems build and use internally. Large health systems like Stanford, Mayo Clinic, and Duke, as well as health insurers, can build their own AI tools that affect care and coverage decisions for thousands of patients with little or no to no direct government oversight. Still, doctors are raising more questions as they attempt to deploy the roughly 350 software tools that the FDA has cleared to help detect clots, tumors, or a hole in the lung. They have found few answers to basic questions. How is the program built? How many people was it tested on? Is it likely to identify something a typical doctor would miss? The lack of publicly available information, perhaps paradoxical in a realm replete with data, is causing doctors to hang back, wary that technology that sounds exciting can lead patients down a path to more biopsies, higher medical bills, and toxic drugs without significantly improving care. Dr. Eric Topol that I mentioned earlier, who used to be at the Cleveland Clinic, author of a book on AI in medicine, is a nearly unflappable optimist about the technology's potential. But he said the FDA have fumbled by allowing AI developers to keep their secret sauce under wraps and failing to require careful studies to assess any meaningful benefits. You have to have really compelling, great data to change medical practice. Again, as I said, to exude confidence that this is the way to go. He is executive vice 
president of Scripps Research in San Diego. Instead, he said the FDA has allowed shortcuts. Large studies are beginning to tell more of the story. One found the benefits of using AI to detect breast cancer. Another highlighted flaws in an app meant to identify skin cancer, Dr. Topol said. Dr. Jeffrey Shuren, the chief of FDA's medical device division, has acknowledged the need for continuing efforts to ensure that the AI programs deliver on their promises after his division clears them. While drugs and some devices are tested on patients before approval, the same is not typically required of AI software programs. One new approach could be building labs where developers could access vast amounts of data and build or test AI programs, Dr. Shuren said during the National Organization for Rare Disorders Conference on October the 16th. If we really want to assure that right balance, we're going to have to change federal law because the framework in place for us to use these technologies is almost 50 years old, said Dr. Sheeran. It really was not designed for AI. Other forces complicate efforts to adapt machine learning for major health and health networks. Software systems don't talk to each other. No one agrees on who should pay for them. By one estimate, about 30% of radiologists are using AI technology. Simple tools that might sharpen an image are an easy sell, but higher risk ones like those selecting whose brain scan should be a priority concern doctors if they don't know, for instance, whether the program was changed to catch maladies in a 19-year-old versus a 90-year-old. Aware of such flaws, Dr. Nina Kotler is a leading is leading a multi-year, multi-million dollar effort to vet AI programs. She's chief of medical she is the chief medical officer for clinical AI at Radiology Partners in Los Angeles based practice that reads 50 million scans annually for about 3,200 hospitals, freestanding emergency rooms, and Im imaging centers in the United States. I would say that's a pretty good sample size. Big time. <laughs> she knew diving into AI would be delicate with the practice's 3,600 radiologists. After all, Jeffrey Hinton, known as the godfather of AI, roiled the profession in 2016 when he predicted that machine learning would replace radiologists altogether. Dr. Kotler says she began evaluating approved AI programs by quizzing their developers and then testing some to see which programs missed relatively obvious problems or pinpointed subtle ones. She rejected one approved program that did not detect lung abnormalities because the cases her radiologist found and missed some obvious ones. I don't want people to be missing anything. I know. Another program that scanned images of the head for aneurysms, a potential life-threatening condition, proved impressive, she said. Though it flagged many false positives, it detected about 24% cases, more cases than radiologists had identified. More people with an apparent brain aneurysm received follow-up care, including a 47-year-old with a bulging vessel mm. in an unexpected corner of his brain. At the end of the telehealth appointment in August, Dr. Roy Fagan realized he was having trouble speaking. Suspecting a stroke, he rushed to the hospital in rural North Carolina for a CAT scan. The image went to Greensboro Radiology, a radiology practice where it set off an alert in a stroke triage AI program. A radiologist, didn't have, a radiologist didn't have to sit through cases ahead of Dr. Fagan's or click through more than a thousand image slices. slices. The one spotting the brain clot popped up immediately. The radiologist had Dr. Fagan transferred to a larger hospital that could rapidly remove the clot. He woke up normal. It doesn't always work this well, said Dr. Suresh Krishnan of Greensboro Radiology, who is the Director of Innovation Development at Radiology Partners. But 
When it works this well, it's life-changing for these patients. Dr. Fagan wanted to return to work the following Monday, but agreed to rest for a week. Impressed with the AI program, he said it's a real advancement to have it here now. Radiology Partners has not published the findings in medical journals. Some researchers have, though highlighted less inspiring instances of the effects of AI in medicine. University of Michigan researchers examined a widely used AI tool and an electronic health system meant to predict which patients would develop sepsis. They found that the program fired off alerts on one in five patients, though only 12% went on to develop sepsis. Another program that analyzed health costs as a proxy to predict medical needs ended up depriving treatment to black patients who were just as sick as white ones. And this is a problem that I just read yesterday about AI mm -hmm. and healthcare disparities. Here we go again. Mm -hmm. The cost data turned out to be a bad stand-in for illness. A study in the journal Scientist found since less money is typically spent on black patients. These programs were not vetted by the FDA, but given the uncertainties, doctors have turned to agency approval records for reinsurance. They found little. One research team looked at AI programs for critically ill patients, found evidence of real world use completely absent or based on computer models. University of Pittsburgh and University of Southern California team also discovered that some of the programs were approved based on their similarities to existing medical devices including some that did not even use artificial intelligence. Another study of FDA cleared programs through 2021 found that of 118 AI tools, only one described the geographic and racial breakdown of the patients the program was trained on. The majority of the programs were tested on 500 or fewer cases, not enough, the study concluded, to justify deploying them widely. Dr. Keith Dreyer, a study author and chief data science officer at Mass General Brigham, is now leading a project through the American College of Radiology to fill the gap of information. With the help of AI vendors that have been willing to share information, he and colleagues plan to publish an update on the agency cleared programs. That way, for instance, doctors can look up how many pediatric cases a program was built to recognize to inform them of blind spots that could potentially affect care. James McKinney, an FDA spokesman, said the agency staff members review thousands of pages before clearing AI programs, but acknowledged that software makers may write the publicly released summaries. Those are not intended for the purpose of making purchasing decisions, he said, adding that more detailed information to provide on product labels, which are not readily accessible to the public. Getting AI oversight right in medicine, a task that involves several agencies is critical, said Dr. Aaron Field. The AMA president, who is the AMA president, he said doctors have scrutinized the role of AI in deadly plane crashes to warn about the perils of automatic safety systems, overriding a pilot's or a doctor's judgment. He said the 737 MAX plane crash inquiries had shown how pilots weren't trained to override a safety concern that contributed to the deadly collisions. He is concerned that doctors might encounter a similar use of AI running in the background of patient care that could prove harmful. Just understanding that the AI is there should be an obvious place to start, Dr. Aaron Phil said. It is not clear that that will always happen if we don't have the right regulatory framework. So, you know, I'm sure that all this 
conversation started out when we was when they started out with electronic medical records. Yeah. And I think you're just gonna have to iron out the kinks. Yeah. I mean, like I said, my concern is healthcare disparities. And there were there was an article yesterday and something about how AI wasn't able to discern something with black patients and was going to contribute to some health yes, disparities. I saw that because how it's put in. Mm-hmm. And then when you test these programs on, and, and you know what, what, and like the, one of the things in this article said, you're not aware of the demographics. Who who is in the article? I know, I know. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. But we yeah. shall see though, because it, it, I mean, it is new, and it's a lot of kinks that that has a to come out. A lot of kinks. That, I just think that you know. Trying to stop this is going to be like pushing the ocean back, yeah. pushing the water back in the ocean. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. We're just going to have to figure it out. We got to figure, figure it, it out, out. and yeah. and 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 um, make it because it it can be like everything. It can be a useful tool. It's we, exactly. We, we got and look. most people don't like change. That's part of the problem. People don't like change. Yes, that's true. So, but it's coming. <laughs> if you don't, you know, you're going to have to. If you don't address it, I mean, if you don't accept it, you're going to be put out to pasture. Because organ, large organizations are going to be using it, and you're going to have to learn how to use it, too. That's exactly it. So, yeah. all right, we got to brace ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, our last article, we're going to talk about young adults. They suffer from anxiety, depression twice mm-hmm. as often as teens. And this was found in the New York Times. And it says many of them are grappling with high housing prices. They're looking at um, a lack of connection in the workplace. There's misinformation that's exasperated by social media and a loneliness epidemic. And so I guess that's why our young folks, I guess that is what's contributing to their and anxiety and depression. And so it says young adults in the United States experience anxiety and depression twice as frequently as teenagers, according to a new nationally representative survey by Making Caring Common, a project of Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. 36% of young adults ages 18 to 25 reported anxiety compared with 18% of younger teenagers ages 14 to 17, while 29% felt depression compared with 15% in the younger age group in the survey. Many of, of this cohort of young adults um, launched a career or entered college amid a pandemic and turbulent economy and are now um, grappling with high um, housing prices, lack of connection in the workplace, world disasters, misinformation exasperated by um, social media, and an epidemic of loneliness across generations. Madeline Armstrong, 22, of Lake Havasu City, she is, that's in Arizona, experienced suicidal depression, anorexia, and anxiety during college, culminating in a psychiatric hospitalization in her junior year. She recovered through therapy and appropriate medicine, but it's still tough. 
It's hard to be happy and focus on the positive things when I'm just struggling to get by and living paycheck to paycheck, said Armstrong, who's considering cutting back on therapy because of the $400 monthly costs on top of student loan debt, but straining her low salary as an assistant newspaper editor. She and her peers are tackling these challenges with fewer resources for support than younger teens who have multiple daily contacts with their parents, caregivers, teachers, and mentors in their schools. While public health and attention has focused on the crisis of mental health among teenagers since the pandemic, 20-somethings have received less attention and fewer resources. Young adults have slipped off our radar, said Richard Weisberg, a psychologist and a director of Harvard's Making Caring Common Project. They're not front and center in our concerns about mental health, and they should be. Well, here are the findings. Several worries affected the mental health of young adults, including finances, that was 56%, pressure to achieve 51%, a lack of direction, 50%, and a sense of things falling apart, 45%. Another finding, gender had an effect. More women reported mental health challenges, 41% anxiety and 35% depression, than men, 31%, and 24%. Race had an impact. White young adults faced the highest rates of anxiety, 38%, followed by Hispanic, Black, and Asian American young adults, 37, 35, and 20%, respectively. For depression, Black folks uh, reported the highest rate, 35%, followed by Hispanics, Whites, and Asian Americans, 32, 28, 21%, respectively. Sexual orientation mattered too. Young LGBTQ plus people experienced more anxiety and depression, 39 and 37% respectively, than straight people, 33% and 26%. But lesbians experienced the lowest rate of mental illness at 28%. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Having a higher income meant less anxiety and depression. Nearly half of young adults earning less than 30% annually experience anxiety versus about 29% for those earning 60000 or more. 36% of people in the lowest earnings bracket experience depression compared with 20% for those making over 100,000. The survey drew on the responses of 1,853 individuals, including 396 teens, 709 young adults, and 748 parents or caregivers to about 50 questions about the pressures on their mental health, social media use, relationship, and sources of support, views of their parents and schools, and values, their values and behaviors. Conducted in December 2022, the survey used two widely accepted sets of questions that healthcare providers use to assess anxiety and depression. The high levels of mental illness reflect the current challenging conditions to entering adulthood, whether that means college, a vocation, the military, or another path. 
housing affordability has dropped to the lowest levels in four decades as home sale prices and rents climbed, but personal income has failed to keep pace. Meanwhile, the cost of health care, electricity, and even groceries has risen. For the first time since the Great Depression, the most common living arrangement for people in their 20s is with one or both parents. Transitioning to independence and to adulthood has been pretty hard for our young people nowadays, said Christine Crawford, a psychiatrist and associate medical director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. These are a lot of concerns that have to do with finances as well as uncertainty about what their future could bring. Transitioning to independence and to adulthood has been pretty hard for our young people nowadays, says Christine Crawford, a psychiatrist and associate medical director of the National Alliance. Who is affected? Well, Gabriel Mitchell, 25, um, graduated from George Mason University in the first months of the pandemic with a degree in psychology. The subsequent years marked a search for direction and stability. He misses being surrounded by peers, but going out and socializing costs money. When you're a kid, you're sold on the American dream where you get a house partner, dog and kids, said Mitchell, who lives in Gettysburg, Maryland with a roommate. That's not realistic for most of us. It's tough and stressful to deal with prices skyrocketing. They keep going up rapidly. When his post-graduation career training fell through, he stumbled into a role as an in-house as an in-home behavioral technician for children with autism and in April 2022 took a job as a case manager. Next month, he will start a similar job with Fairfax County, supporting elderly adults with disabilities. He's relieved to have found a sense of purpose more than two and a half years after graduating college, but he is nervous about the looming expense when he leaves his parents, okay, insurance at age 26. Other peers haven't found their path. And so it goes on to talk about different other folks and their challenges. What are the ways to address mental health concerns? Well, the decline of community support and engagement with religious institution exacerbates the loneliness and lack of direction. Wiseboard said there are structures and traditions in religion that are very important to people that may make them feel that they're a part of a larger humanity that give them coordinate in um, space and time. Young people who do find purpose experience motivation, positivity, and drive according to research by William Damon, a professor and director of Stanford University Center on Adolescence. It takes a while to really develop that and commit to that, especially in today's world, Damon said. College and vocational employers should do more to engage and support people ages 18 to 25 in finding purpose, developing career skills, and achieving independence. A lot of educators, educators in colleges are not doing the kind of mentoring that people are needing, he said, noting a decline in trust of the world of work generally. That has an effect on morale, 
hope aspiration. Peer support can be an important complement to traditional therapy, said Laura Horn, Chief Program Officer for Active Minds, a national mental health nonprofit group. Active Minds, in partnership with MTV, released a tool that teaches peer support through the Ask Rubik. Acknowledge, support, and keep in touch. Other options include ShareWell and Peers.net. There's a lot of history in communities healing ourselves, Horn said. That's what we need more of in the U.S., So I guess we're back to community support. Pretty much. Right? Pretty much. That's what we're going to have to do, more community. A lot of of, um, time was lost. Ground is not going to be made up during the COVID crisis because people lived alone alone and stuff like that, you know, and it's, it's hard to make that up. It's hard to make that up. And we can see the difference. You know, I was talking about my daughters, you know, they, they were doing major things, trying to finish up major things, college, you know, um, what's con was her first year medical school, you know, trying yeah. to deal with this when you're supposed to be having that social support and stuff. They were right. in their room trying to do stuff online by themselves. Exactly. exactly. Whole nother different culture developed with that COVID thing and a whole nother different, like you said in this article was talking about, you know, a lot of the mental health issues Mm -hmm. started. I don't know how kids did it. I mean, I I don't know. It would have been tough. It was tough. And and some of them are still being, what we say is some residual stuff coming from, from dealing with that. Big time. Absolutely. And, and I Big think time. for the nation itself, you know, we're we're kinda out of it, but I think it might take us another three or four years more. I have I continue to say we're gonna be we're gonna be dealing with post traumatic stress disorder, just like if we had been in a war. Mm-hmm. That the after effects are gonna be just the same kind of after effects that you have with post traumatic stress disorder and how that's manifested in individuals I know. everybody's going to be different it's going to be different it's, it's something and so yeah i think yeah we just need to really pay attention and that's what i yeah. try to do when i'm out there with the young folks i try to you know pay attention you know even right. though they're learning and stuff ask them you know how are you really doing today you know I what's going on ask, like with mark here how are you doing Mm-hmm. How are things coming along? What you doing today? You know, engage in that kind of mental health. Are you all right? Everything okay? Yes, it's needed. You know. It's needed. And so, yeah, there we are. Yeah. But, you know, as we come upon it again, it is time for us to end our show. We can go on forever, right? I know. These are good topics today. I know. And so you have some tips that we can think about. Yeah, just briefly, the um, the time-restricted diet versus counting calories in patients with diabetes. Like you said, there are all kinds of variations on the theme. For me personally, I think time-restricted might be better for me personally than counting calories. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. So that was a good article. The, the article that I wrote about COVID and vaccine hesitancy is something that you need to just think about, you know, with your own self, whether you're high risk, whether you feel that you need it. I definitely feel that people need to get the, the, the influenza vaccine, but I think you need to also talk to your physician you know, about your risk factors for COVID. And I have told people that in terms of RSV vaccine, I'm just kind of waiting. The jury, I mean, not the jury's out, but at least for me, who's not high risk, I'm holding off on that. Okay. Then I talked about AI 
and pretty lengthy article about, you know, basically I think the, the issue is, as we said at the end, it's going through growing pains like anything else. People don't like change. Um, the kinks have to be worked out. We just have to make sure that it's fair and equitable for everybody else because lives are dependent on that. And for example, suppose a person from a marginalized community didn't have access to the kind of hospital like that doctor in Greens in North Carolina had where they were able to life flight him to a hospital where the stroke clot was removed. That doesn't happen to everybody. And so, you know, it's still, unfortunately, I'm sorry, the haves and the have-nots. Okay, basically. You know, that's basically what it is. So we'll see how it turns out. But a lot of people are making a lot of money. I was with a friend last week who lives in Germany, and he's working um, a lot on AI and medicine. I mean, this is a hot, hot topic. And some of the big players are Amazon and Google, as you might imagine, Elon Musk and all of them, the big players that are with this. And then lastly, young adults suffer from anxiety, depression twice as often as teens. And you outline all the various reasons, you know, worrying about finances and the cost of living going up, living with your parents, having to pay back student loans. More women reported mental health challenges, as we know, than men. Race, But you know, that that, that statistic might be a little skewed because men tend to, tend to look at it as a stigma. Yes. And they don't report to it. wanting to report it. Yes. You know? So I, there's don't. something in there. Of course, race had an, has an impact as it does on a lot of things where people from marginalized communities were greater. Um, sexual orientation, young LGBTQ people experience more anxiety and depression because there's still stigma associated with that. Mm -hmm. Having a higher income meant less anxiety and depression. So, you know, again, these kids coming out of school worrying about paying their loans back and getting low paying jobs, that's of concern. So, I think one of the main things out of that, as we said at the end, it goes back to communities need to become more involved. Communities, and they said religious institutions are going to have to become more involved like they were for HIV AIDS. So, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Instead of just kind of talking about it, we got to really get our walk boots the on walk. the ground, right? Walk boots on the, the ground. Walk. Yeah. walk the walk. Walk the walk. All right. And as always, for more information, go to our website, vickidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.